0: everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. Today is August 7th, 2023, which puts us in the middle, but more towards the end of the annual, now annual days between. Right. Jerry was born on August 1st, died on August 9th. And some marketing geniuses declared those days the days between. And on the Dead Channel, we get a lot of uh, Jerry concerts, which is wonderful. Great interviews with Jerry, uh, music, other people uh, covering Jerry's tunes. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a nice celebration. It's a worthwhile celebration, especially for those of us who were always big Garcia fans Uh that you know really that was what drove all of us i think not all of us but certainly a lot of my group and and uh people like rob i know and others you know um we we were always tuned into jerry and uh i love bob i love phil i love all of them and i love seeing them still but uh you know there was something about jerry that was uh very special so uh in honor of the days between we are going to feature. Uh, some clips some of my favorite jerry clips on uh, some of my favorite tunes that jerry plays and we'll start off with this one So that's pr- pretty much uh, the appropriate tune, I think, to start off for this period of time. And uh, it captures everything very nicely. That's from Soldier Field, July 24th, 1994, um, show that I was at. In fact, uh, four of the six clips I'm going to play today were from shows I was at. No, I'm lying. Three of the six clips I'm going to play, I think, were shows that I was at. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But this was a great one, uh, a great version of the tune. It's a tune that I think for some of us, me especially, you know, kind of came to be, uh, you know, it's acquired taste. You have to work your way th- uh, through it a few times. Um, and this was an interesting show uh, in Chicago back in 94 because the first set ended with, If the Shoe Fits, Easy Answers into Don't Ease Me In. And then the second uh, set was... Uh, uh, we got a Samson Long Way to Go Home, Eyes of the World, Eternity, He's Gone, Drum Space, The Days Between, Throwing Stones Not Fade Liberty, uh, which at that point in time of my life was pretty run of the mill, uh, especially the Throwing Stones Not Fade Liberty, which was always, always ultimately predictable when the Grateful Dead came to Chicago during those soldier field years, that at least one of the nights was going to go down that road. And not that we didn't enjoy the songs, but, you know, we just kept begging them once just to, you know, Abandon that and, you know, go into something else and really shock the hell out of us. But still well played, and uh, that's a great days between. Um, you know, had uh, Jerry lived a little bit longer and had a chance to play it more, probably would have, uh, you know, really moved right up to the top of uh, Jerry ballads that people love uh, listening to and talking about. So uh, a great way to get started. This next clip that I want to play is from a show that I wasn't at. Although uh, the very first time they covered this tune, I was at the show back in uh, 1986, so I guess that kind of counts a little bit. It's a uh, Dylan cover, it's uh, Jerry interpreting Bob, and it's a, uh, it's a great version of Visions of Johanna. just like tonight? Matrix, when you're trying to be so quiet? The heat pipes just caught The country music station plays soft, but there's nothing really, nothing to tune on. Just the week. And up. Up. Beautiful tune, beautiful when Bob does it, even more beautiful when Jerry does it because his voice is a little bit better. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, so this is from The Spectrum in Philadelphia, 1995, March 18th. And what's most notable about that for me is that this is 95. You know, we're, we're at the end. This is, you know, the, the, the fall, uh, excuse me, the spring tour little time off back for summer tour and then boom, Jerry's dead. So, you know, we have all these people. When you go and you find these shows and you start to read the comments on archive.org or on the, the set list program that you, you can go to that has all the, the shows listed and you read the comments, there's always people for these mid to late, uh, you know, 93, 94, 95 shows who bring all the negative energy and all oh, they sucked. And then, you know, no good show since something of 92 or 91. And, you know, these are terrible and blah 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 and you're like look this is who they were at that time and this is what they do but it's a very solid version of that tune from jerry uh, in 1995 both in terms of remembering the words playing it so well and uh, you know actually really sounding energetic while he was singing it um, you know so that's a really really uh i think a great thing to be able to you know hear and keep in mind that even at the end jerry had his good days uh even if uh more often than we would like, he had his bad days. Uh, again, Visions of Johanna from the, the Dylan album, Blonde on Blonde, came out in 1966. The Dead only covered it eight times. And the first one was in March 19th, 1986 at Hampton Coliseum, uh, which I was at. The last one was July 8, 1995 at Soldier Field, which I was at, but I was not at March 18, 1995. But why did I include that version of it then? I will tell you why. Because it's Phil's favorite version of the tune. And a few years back, Phil came out with an album called From the Phil Zone. It's a uh, double disc set and it's just a number of individual live tunes that Phil went through and pulled out and has a little bit of an explanation for why he selected each one. But uh, all sorts of different tunes live. They span all the eras. And, um, you know, Phil gives his little insights on everything, but he loves this one. He goes, this was his favorite version of it. And he takes note of the fact that it was in 95 when Jerry was at, In failing health, and people were always saying that Jerry never had a good moment, and I don't remember the exact wording, but something like, "But on this night, you know, Jerry really showed him, or Jer—I think he always called him Jer." So, you know, if if this is this version of Visions of Johanna is good enough for Phil to pick to put on his uh, hand-selected live disc that he's putting out, it's certainly good enough for us to play today. Uh, when we're remembering Jerry and uh, honoring him uh, for all the good things he did. And the other thing I'll say is that I'm not playing any uh, Jerry Garcia band stuff today. And um, although that would certainly seem to be fitting, you know, honoring Jerry with his own band and the stuff that he did on his uh, birth there on the days between, I don't disagree. Um, but there's so many great moments of him with the Grateful Dead that it's just a shame not to focus on them. When it's the Jerry Garcia band playing, you know, it's more a question of this great moment, this great moment, this great moment. But when it's him playing with the Grateful Dead, you know, it's a little bit different. Not every tune is his tune. Not every tune is he stepping out on. Um, not every tune does he, you know, hit the notes all so well. Uh, but on the nights when he does it with the Grateful Dead, certainly uh, those are some of the best. And and I think the one thing we'll find today that all these clips uh, kind of uh, have in common uh, is that very fact that um, you know they all come from nights when Jerry was really on. And, uh, you know, I, either, like I say, if I was at the show, then I know. And if I wasn't at the show, uh, as you'll see from some of the later selections, they're, they're, they're versions of songs that are pretty much, uh, you know, top flight for uh, any real deadhead worth, uh, worth their salt, as they say. Um, you know, we've all heard these versions and we all know them, but, you know, sometimes it's just nice to stop and kind of group them together and uh, uh, really have some fun with it. So we're talking about Jerry today and, you know, there's so many stories about him and there's so many videos and you can just go online and find them all and they're all great and it's kind of hard just to pick any one um, and focus on it. You know, I think that Rob and I and, you know, when we, when we do the show and when we talk about, um, uh, you know, Jerry or Bobby or any of them, and we, you know, start to recall our favorite moments. Uh, we love we we love recounting moments of Jerry doing things, musically singing, dancing, forgetting the words, whatever it might be. Um, that you know it, it. I don't want to say it becomes boring. It never is boring, but it just you know somehow it's hard. It, it begins to sound the same. But I think that one of the things that's really cool for any musician, just like anybody in any category, is how your peers feel about you. And, uh, you know, the people who are doing the same thing you're doing on a regular basis and, you know, who have the same struggles that, you know, you as a songwriter, performer, guy who's always on tour uh, have to go through. And um, it's really amazing to hear some of the things that people in the music industry uh, and related stuff have said about Jerry over the years. Like, for instance, Vince Welnick said, the first time I ever laid eyes on Jerry, I believed in Santa Claus. I still believe. Now, the one thing unfortunately I can't give you is exactly when all these quotes date from. Uh, but I'm going to, uh, you know, believe that this had some time to do while he was playing with the dead, or maybe uh, shortly thereafter, um, or maybe right around the time Jerry died, uh, because um, you know we've all talked about Vince and how ultimately he got the short end of the stick for the 2015 reunion and everything else, and. Uh, you know, we've heard that it was something that he never really uh, completely bounced back from in terms of, you know, not being upset and disappointed that after the work he did for them that they didn't bring him in that way. And, you know, I would have to feel the same. I mean, we we all grew to love Vince just like we loved Brent and everybody else. But I love this quote because, you know, it's it just kind of demonstrates the kid in all of them. And, uh, you know, Santa Claus is a very universal theme. And we all know what somebody means when they say that, unless it's one of those weird bad Santa movies. But otherwise, uh you know, it just is what it is. And, you know, it's very nice of Vince. Dwight Yoakam, right? Well, here's a guy who's, you know, in a completely different genre of music. But uh, his quote is, I'll miss Jerry every time I hear the sweet sound of the pedal steel guitar he played on Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Teach Your Children. And we've talked about that. We've talked about the um, uh, uh, guys from that band who have played with the Grateful Dead and how Jerry's played back with them. And they taught the guys of the dead how to harmonize and uh, you know, Jerry played on this song on their album for them. and um, But, you know, a, a guy like Dwight Yoakam, who focuses much more on the countryside of music and, you know, not quite as much on the rock and roll, you know, shows where his roots actually lay, right? He, he's very well familiar with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He's very familiar with the fact that Garcia played on the album. And, uh, you know, very, very complimentary of it. And, you know, I think that's a great thing, too. You know, and then we have Bruce Hornsby, who was, you know, such a, you know, may have been the fifth member, excuse me, seventh member of the Grateful Dead. Um, Certainly the amount of time he gave them uh, after Brent died was exceptional. And uh, those were very special shows when he was out there playing with them. And it was great to have him back in 2015. And his quote is that, Garcia spoke to my jazz consciousness and symbolized freedom. Uh, You know, two interesting thoughts there, right? Jazz consciousness as a musician, um, I see that as something that's on a slightly higher plane than, uh, uh, you know, maybe just your standard three-chord rock and roll, at least the way I think uh, Bruce Hornsby is interpreting it because, uh, you know, he's not just, it wouldn't be fair to just label him as a rock and roll pianist. He's a a real pianist and he has exceptional talent and uh, he plays in a number of different genres, you know, uh, in and out of rock and roll music, whether it's the Grateful Dead style or any of the others, um, and, of course, symbolized freedom because that's what the Grateful Dead were always all about, and that's what Jerry was all about. Uh, he was the leader of that group in terms of, you know, freedom, go ahead, tape our shows, go ahead, hang out, go ahead, um, you know, uh, tune in, drop out, and whatever the phrase was. I wasn't old enough to know it back then. So um, forgive me, people who lived in the 60s. But nevertheless, that's uh, that's Jerry. And, uh, you know, when it's cool when a guy like Bruce Hornsby, um, you know, recognizes him, A, both for his outstanding musical talents and B, uh, for the the, the, um, the the visions and the thoughts and the movements that Uh, really came to symbolize Jerry's life and you know what he did stand for for people when he was out there playing and and doing all of his great stuff. Uh, Rock Scully who was a manager for the band basically from 65 to 85 and then was in and out with them for a while after that and had some hard feelings and sometimes they tried to make it up and you know Rock passed away from cancer a few years back and i certainly can't tell you how things were left uh, between and among them all um but there's no doubt that he was a significant part of the band uh you know during a very significant portion of their career uh rock scully says jerry was the grateful dead not because he was the band's unofficial leader or its icon, but because of his noble spirit and stupefying resilience. And that's interesting to say about somebody, stupefying resilience. Well, that's true. Jerry just had the ability to come back again and again and again. If they had a bad night, it didn't matter. If they had a good night, he was still coming back out. If the cops came out and busted him, you know, uh, he still would come back the next night and play. He went into a coma and, you know, within months was back playing again. And then it happened a second time. Uh, he was a very resilient man. And given his. Uh, his drug habits and the levels of consumption over the last 20 plus years of his life. It's amazing that he showed the resilience to live as long as he did. And, uh, you know, we all just wish he would have been around a little bit longer and, uh, could have done his thing a little bit more, but, uh, we are happy for what we had with him and from him and, uh, have to agree with rock Scully on this, that he did have a very noble spirit and, and his resilience was, uh, uh both amazing and motivating and, uh, a little bit scary. Um, there's John Perry Barlow, who of course was, uh, the great lyricist for so many of Bobby's tunes, Bob Weir's tunes. And he said, somebody asked me in an interview right before Jerry died, what it was like, what it was like to know Jerry Garcia. The question hit me strange. I thought about all the ways in which he and his various manifestations had woven themselves into my life over the last 30 years. And I said, God, I can't imagine what it would be like not to know Jerry Garcia. And yeah, you know, that's I think there's a reason why Deadheads always kind of imagined that, you know, they were going to turn the corner and wander into a little party where Jerry was hanging out. And he'd look up and say, hey, man, come join us. And, you know, you'd get to know Jerry, too. Um, you know, a lot of people are afraid, I think, ultimately to meet their rock and roll heroes because you just don't know if the rock and roll heroes are going to be assholes or approachable people, uh, you know, or, or what they're going to be like. And... Um, Guys like John Perry Barlow, admittedly he was you know, very deep into the family uh, at that point. Um, but you know, my sense is that uh, you know Jerry was that way with everybody he met, and that uh, you know he was not very judgmental of people. And uh, you know, if you weren't bothering him, he wasn't around to be bothering you. And uh, that would be an amazing type of person to know. Uh, but you know, for many of us, it was not the way we only know him through his music and uh, you know the other parts we've heard about him. Uh, and seen about him, but there may be nobody other than his daughters and, uh, uh, other family members who knows him better than mountain girl, um, mountain girl, who was his first wife and, uh, such an integral part of, um, uh, the early years of the grateful dead and, um, everything that they did as they were, you know, just kind of like moving in together, all of them, and really forming their community. And, uh, you know, the role that she played so deep and woven that even after uh, she and Jerry broke up, uh, she remained a, a part of the family uh, and part of the inner circle right up until the very end. Um, you know, she was one of the uh, original Ken Kesey uh, pranksters and uh, part of the whole psychedelic movement. Uh, and, and definitely somebody who was, uh, no matter how many other people Jerry married, I think was always kind of hard, you know, ultimately not to imagine him with her. And her quote was just to um, quote, uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of the greatest lyricists of all time saying, we'll meet again someday on the avenue, uh, which is very appropriate because I'm sure that her karmic her, her spirit absolutely believes that she and Jerry are meant to be together and they will meet again someday. Um but uh, you know, this is also a little nod, I think, uh, to Jerry and his interpretation of um, uh, "Tangled Up in Blue," uh, a Bob Dylan classic that we all know Jerry loved to play and uh, became a regular part of the playing uh, of his songbook, playing with the uh, uh, Jerry Garcia band. So uh, it, it's both nice and lovely and appropriate, and um, you know, again, from Mountain Girl who had a very special relationship with Jerry. Uh, You know, is particularly meaningful. So let's dive back into all of our music here. And uh, the next one we have uh, is another uh, Jerry favorite of mine. It is actually considered a Jerry Garcia tune because it came off a Jerry Garcia album. uh, But the Dead did get around to playing it. So uh, let's listen to "Comes the Time." When the blood... So that's comes a time and that's the starlight theater in Kansas city on September 3rd, 1985, a show that Rob and I talk about often It's part of that summer of 85 stretch when the band was really killing it. And they had jumped back into that Said for the other one and the full boat on that. Um, and they were pulling out some old classics and, uh, comes a time was one of them, uh, that they did pull out. And, uh, those of us uh, that were all going to law school at the university of Missouri at the time, and were smart enough and lucky enough to be able to drive two hours west to Kansas city. Um, except for my buddy Mark, who drove all the way from St. Louis in Madison, Columbia, Missouri, and headed the rest of the way over there with us. My good buddy Casey was there. We had a whole group of people. And uh, it, it's it's really one of the best shows, I think, of 1985 and maybe of the entire 1980s. Um, but this comes a time from that night. It was really, really classic and uh, well worth featuring today. Again, as we uh, you know think about and you know, try to remember Jerry, um, the tune, from his album, his solo album *Reflections*, which came out in 1976, it was his third solo album. Uh, but interestingly enough, partway through the production, he stopped recording with his solo band and brought in the members of the Grateful Dead, who performed on four songs plus a bonus jam uh, from uh, 2000 and f- for the 2004 release or, uh, re-release. Uh, three of the four uh, Grateful Dead performer songs had earlier live debuts comes a time being one of them, which debuted in 1971. Uh, They Love Each Other, which debuted in 1973. And it must've been The Roses, which debuted in 1974. Um, uh, Might as well entered their rotation in 1976 and Mission of the Rain received a few select uh, performances that same year, but not much more after that. So this was a Garcia album that was basically uh, uh, test driven by the Grateful Dead. it appeared a, a total of sixty-six times uh, over the Grateful Dead's thirty years, and it was not uncommon uh, for them to play it uh, in short bursts. So, uh, three times in ten shows, maybe, uh, and then they'd go several hundred tri- several hundred shows uh, before it would make another appearance. It was first performed on October nineteenth, nineteen seventy-one, at Northrop Hall, Northrop Hall, uh, at the original U, the U of Minnesota. Um, Sky ma rah 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 and all that good stuff, um, and that's actually a night when the Dead broke out a number of tunes. Uh, it's worth it to go to archive.org and check out October nineteenth, nineteen seventy-one from uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, and um, you'll 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 hear and be amazed at how good everything sounds and how early it is that they're playing some of these tunes. But again, this being one of them, this is five years before the album dropped and uh it was played for the last time on October 9th 1994 at US Air Arena in Landover, Maryland um and then unfortunately uh for the next uh 10 months or so that were left uh dropped out of the rotation again and we didn't get to hear it anymore um now the uh The next song is uh, uh, from a show that I did not see, uh, but my good buddy Mikey was there, and it's always been one of my favorites back when we were collecting tapes, uh, and right up to the present, uh, where if I just have some time at hand and I want to listen, I will drop on set two, and it begins like this. Classic version of one of their classic tunes, again from April 6, 1982, the Spectrum in Philadelphia. They later released the show uh, in their Road Trips series, and I couldn't re- remember. I can't tell you what volume and number it was, but. Uh, it's easily found uh, online with uh, the Grateful Dead store. Uh, it's a tremendous show all the way through. I could have really picked anything but that guitar. And notice no vocals were necessary there. The, the guitar, there's two or three excellent guitar solos in this version. Um, and uh, he just slides in and out of them effortlessly. Uh, they're all wonderful. It is a classic uh, 1980s Jerry Garcia sound on his guitar with the Wawas going strong. And I really love the interplay between he and Brent. Again, this is still relatively early in Brent's uh, tenure with the band. You know, just basically going on three years at this point, and uh, you know, he and Jerry are uh, you know trading licks and uh, leads as they as they go through the uh, the jamming of the tune very effortlessly, and it's 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 fun to listen to. And we've often talked about how they inspired one another, and I think that this is a uh, another really great example of that. Um, so let's dive back in for a minute. I think because I I, I I pulled down a few more of these quotes from people uh, talking about Jerry, and, and there, uh, the the website that I went to directed me to about eighty or eighty five of them, and you know probably twenty or thirty of them were, eh, you could live with them or without them, uh, but there were very very many that were good. But I can't just be sitting here all day reading quotes. But I felt like I could not read the rest of these, so. Uh, let's just go through them here, uh, Brantford Marsalis, uh, famous sax player who, uh, became a, uh, a fan favorite, uh, deadhead favorite on those occasions when he would sit in with the band on their eyes of the world from March, 1989, uh, out on Long Island, I think is still, um, one of my all time favorites that they've ever played. And, uh, it's just amazing. Um, just, he's he's incredible, and, and putting him together with the Grateful Dead uh, is something else. He says this is not a sent-, Excuse me, there is not a sentence in the world that could respectfully do justice to the life and music of Jerry Garcia. And that's a pretty heavy statement if you think about it. Branford Marsalis is in the business of you know making statements to people musically, of course, but. Um, you know, he's, he's saying that Jerry's bigger than that. Jerry's beyond that. And right. You you can't really use words to do him justice. Uh, You have to be there. You have to have heard him. You have to been on stage playing with him. You have to have experienced uh, all that kind of stuff that he brings to the table. Um, And when you do, then how can you possibly go back and sum it up in just, you know, one sentence, one word, one, anything You, you can't. Uh, Bob Dylan says, there's no way to measure Jerry's greatness or magnitude as a person or as a player. He really had no equal. His playing was moody, awesome, sophisticated, hypnotic, and subtle. There's no way to convey the loss. Obviously, uh statement made at the time of, of Jerry's passing. And I, think about this for a minute. There's no way to measure his greatness or magnitude as a person or as a player he really had no equal. Now this is Bob Dylan talking, and I uh, love Jerry, but I think there's so many people out there who would say that Bob Dylan is is the epitome of the ultimate, you know, defining. Rock and roller of you know of all time, his his songs that everybody plays, and his style, and his independence, and his breakaway from the uh, what he saw this you know more confining acoustical style, and branching out into electric at the uh, Newport Jazz Festival, and feeling the wrath of the crowd as he did it, uh, and and, and you're know, writing songs that the Dead covered forever. So many of them, so many of them that there's albums of Grateful Dead covers of Bob Dylan tunes. And Bob Dylan is saying that, you know, Jerry, there's no way to measure Jerry's greatness or magnitude as a person, and that Bob Dylan's saying Jerry had no equal. You know, that would be like, you know, if you're a basketball player and, you know, Michael Jordan says, yeah, Dan Humiston had no equal, you know, and I mean, Michael Jordan, well, for God's sakes, you know, if he's saying it, how, how can you be saying it like that? I mean, Dan's a good player. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I mean, this is just, I, I read this kind of stuff and, you know, it really makes me, you know, I don't want to say it makes me proud. I mean, you know, Jerry's Jerry was just this wonderful musician to me, but you know it was very reaffirming. You know all of these strong feelings that we all had about Jerry and who he was, and and who he was as a person, and who he was as a musician, and and how amazing his tunes were. And you know, were we really the crazy ones driving all around the country to hear him play, or were we the smart ones knowing that you know, ten years after he died, all of a sudden it would be very retro to totally love Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, and you know everybody would want to say that they had been at all of those shows, but we were really there. And you know Bob Dylan, man, that that's that's fantastic. Jerry's uh, bandmate and, and little buddy uh, for years. Bob Weir says, "I see Jerry in my dreams all the time. I hear him when I'm on stage. I would say I can't talk to him, but I can. I don't miss him. He's here. He's with me. And of course, what else is Bob Weir going to say, right? <laughs> I love that. That's classic, Bobby. You know, he's 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 talking." He's talking sense and nonsense at the same time, but he's talking from the heart. We all know what he means. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it had to be very strange for Bob Weir because I think that Bob was very comfortable in his role in The Grateful Dead. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, that they were all equally important. And they were all, and Bob still is, a tremendous musicians. And, uh, but, you know, it's like talking about Susan Tedeschi, you know, playing next, standing right next to her husband, Derek Trucks, who's, you know, the greatest guitar player in the world. So when you want to, go, otherwise any night we would all be staring at her, a beautiful woman with an amazing voice who plays guitar practically better than anybody except the guy standing next to her. And Bob Weir was an amazing rock and roller and still is. Um, and I'm glad that he's had his time to shine without Jerry, although I wish still he would play fewer Jerry tunes and more Bobby tunes. Um, But, uh, you know, he's had his time to shine and I think he's done a marvelous job in many respects, Um, you know, leading Rat Dog, leading Bob Weir and and the Wolf Brothers, and certainly, of course, leading Dead & Company, playing in Further, playing, you know, in all of these other bands. He's the one guy who's been in all of them as they've come along and, you know, it's wonderful that, uh, uh, you know, he feels so close to all of that. It's it's still such a meaningful part for him and, um, you know we all go out there to still see uh, the, the, the dead and co shows and all these other shows, because seeing Bob, Weir is seeing the grateful dead. And, you know, even if at the day during the, at the time, you know, we were all, all Jerry fans. And, you know, if we had our way, um, there would all be Jerry tunes, you know, and Jerry would just play all night and Bobby would, you know, fill in his background and maybe at the end throw in a sugar magnolia. And we'd all go home with a smile on our face, but Bobby more than earned his place in the band. And, uh, uh, earned his way into the, uh, you know, the hearts and the gratitude of all the deadheads everywhere. And he's the surviving, you know, of the, 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 the two of them, he's the surviving member. And um, I would say he hasn't disappointed, but, uh, you know, I love hearing him talk like that and, you know, expressing how close he was to Garcia and how important, uh, you know, Garcia was. And, you know, he's, he's just not ready to say goodbye. And if he's not, then I'm not. And now here's a good one, right, because everybody talks about Fish and everybody talks about Trey, and Trey played at the 2015 reunion, and Trey is what Jerry would – Trey today is where Jerry would have been back in the day if he hadn't overdosed and died, if he had been able to extricate himself from the the, the terrible uh, condition that he had that that, that just would not let him walk away from the claws, if you will, uh, of heroin and other – other drugs that were so terrible and dangerous and took so many rockers lives and you can say, well, yeah, we got Jerry 30 years longer, almost in the 27 club, but, you know, we didn't get him as long as we could have. And and I think Trey's a great example. And, you know, we've talked about that in the past and, you know, Trey and his bandmates just made a conscious decision that being a touring band was not compatible with helping somebody try and kick this type of uh, addiction. And you know, to their credit, they took the time that was necessary uh, for Trey to get better, and um, you know whatever the other ones wanted to do and you know take care of during that period of time. And you know they've come back stronger and, and, and better than ever. And it's amazing to see as they enter their late 50s and early 60s uh, how much incredible energy they still have. And you know, while they may be uh, not a half a step, let's say a quarter step slower than uh, they used to be. Uh, they still play with a wonderful energy and they still play with a great excitement and uh, they still play amazing shows and, you know, God bless Trey Anastasio and those guys. It's a, it's a great band. And, uh, um, you know, my only wish is I would have dived into the whole scene a little bit sooner, but, you know, I'm happy to take him when I can get him. So Trey says about Jerry that Jerry was a very gentle and unassuming man who brought so much joy and love into people's lives through music. I can't think of a more profound and beautiful accomplishment At the end of a lifetime and what's amazing about that is he's absolutely right in so many ways he's right about that for any person uh he's right about that for jerry garcia and they're going to say the same thing about trey anastasio someday they're going to say that we can't think of you know that Trey was a gentle unassuming man who brought so much joy and love into people's lives through music. And, you know, I, I it, it's amazing that, you know, Trey sees it in Jerry. And my guess is if, you know, you try to ask Trey if he saw it himself, that, uh, you know, he would be a little more unassuming and, uh, uh, you know, Trey's never really bought into any of that stuff, you know, a lot of the same way that, you know, Jerry never bought into it, you know, not out there hawking stuff on TV and showing up in all of the uh, periodicals and, you know, Top Razzie magazines and, and that kind of stuff. They, you know, they go, they play their music, they have their families, they do their thing, and uh, you know, Trey. If there's any human being alive, I think, you know, who can relate to what it felt, what it feels like to be Jerry Garcia, you know, I would say that Trey has to be, you know, in the top one, two, or three uh, candidates for that because he has, with his bandmates, built a, a musical juggernaut. Uh, that maybe isn't quite as big and and you know overwhelming as the Grateful Dead, but certainly big enough and uh, with a wonderful community and you know their own fish heads and and everything that they do and you know that they've they've taken the 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 ideas of the Grateful Dead and you know transformed it into a way that works so well for them. So uh, it's wonderful to hear you know Trey be able to to talk about Jerry that way and recognize him. And I'm sure I'm echoing the frustration of a lot of deadheads who have become late in life fish fans, but for God's sakes, man, play a dead tune every now and then show us what you can do. If there's anybody out there who's qualified to do it, Trey, it's you. You played with those boys. Come on. We're all waiting for you just to break into a shakedown street one night. It's going to happen. So let's make it happen sooner. Um, the next one who, uh, uh, has a quote about Jerry is is a guy who um, boy it's kind of hard to describe exactly you know what Ken Kesey means to to the movement and to the Grateful Dead and, and to so many of us really who uh, for whom he opened uh, you know and kind of unlocked our brains and uh, you know really showed us the other side of life and uh, you know what happens when you push past the, past the point where your parents always say no um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was an amazing book and I read it when I was much younger and it didn't mean nearly as much to me as it did when I read it again when I was much older. The, the story as much as just his, his, his wonderful style of writing and the way he conveys that whole story. But that's that's Ken Kesey 1.0. Ken Kesey 2.0 is the Ken Kesey who moved up to Oregon and bought the farm and bought the further bus and you know created the home base for the Merry Pranksters uh, who definitely uh, were the movement that gave birth to to the Grateful Dead by way of all of their uh, trips, festivals, and uh, um, you know, it, it, acid tests uh, that uh, Thomas Wolfe wrote about in um, the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. Which, if you have never read that book, read it because whether you're a Dead fan, whether you're a psychedelics fan, it doesn't matter. He's a great writer. It's it's a very great story, and um, it, it it really conveys a lot of wonderful things about. Uh, both Ken Kesey's community from which the Grateful Dead emerged as the house band for the acid tests and then, you know, continuing through to the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, really becoming the main attraction and so many people being there and and, and enjoying themselves uh, with a slightly altered perspective based on uh, this wonderful drug that Ken Kesey uh, was so instrumental in helping uh, unleash on the masses, if you will, uh, you know, right up there with Owsley Stanley and uh, some of the other guys who were really at the forefront of uh, making sure that people who wanted to uh, take their own little trip had the ability to do so. Um, so, you know, Ken Kesey is just such an important guy in so many ways. And he says, Jerry, knocked the chunk out of the wall and let the sun shine through. And it's up to us to keep that light shining through. Someday we are going to have to answer to him. And I like how he puts that at the end, right? That uh, wherever we're all going, Jerry's going to be there again. And, um, you know, that, that's a wonderful thought. Uh, you know, comforting in some ways, not the ultimate comfort, certainly. As, uh, you know, we grow older and we have loved ones and everything else like that. But certainly nice to know as a deadhead that, you know, if there's a possibility to, you know, to catch up again with Jerry somewhere else in another dimension and another time's forgotten space, and uh, you know, hear what he can uh, hear what he can do now, or who knows, maybe we can do it, and he listens to us, right? But whatever it is, um, uh, it's all pretty cool, and um, you know, uh, uh, love that about uh, Keezy. The last quote that we have is um, from a guy who really was Jerry's right hand man for so many years, and you know, with whom uh, he and Jerry wrote. So many, so many wonderful tunes, so much beautiful music uh, that we all still listen to today and, and love so much. And that, of course, is Robert Hunter, uh, who we lost earlier this year or late last year. And only Robert Hunter could say it this way. So here's 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 Robert Hunter's quote about Jerry Garcia. I feel your silent laughter at sentiments so bold that date to step across the line to tell what must be told. So I'll just say I love you, which I never said before, and let it go at that old friend. The rest you may ignore. Well, you know, nobody says it better than Robert Hunter, and nobody says it better with Jerry Garcia than Robert Hunter. And I think that's a beautiful quote about Jerry and and one that really resonates for me. And, you know, one where I think maybe it's time to say, okay, enough of that. Dan, I think it's time to talk a little marijuana. What do you got for us today? Smoking them wildwood flowers got to be a habit. We never see no harm. Oh, we thought it was kind of handy. Take a trip and never leave the forest. Yes. Um, who is that, Dan? Jim Stafford. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, this this is this is good stuff that you found. And uh, thank you for finding that stuff and, and playing it. It always uh, puts a smile on my face at this time of day. So today we start off with an article from our friends over at Marijuana Moment, thank you very much, telling us that a key Senate committee says that federal law blocks marijuana and psychedelics research due to schedule 1 restrictions. At which point we all want to completely gag and puke all over ourselves because are they dragging us back into this classic catch 22? Well, let's turn to the record and see what it says. Uh a Senate committee, the Appropriations Committee, has approved a spending bill that contains sections encouraging the expansion of federally supported research into marijuana and psychedelics, while also expressing concern about barriers to studies that result from the substance's ongoing Schedule I designations. The panel further noted that scientists face access limited access to sources of cannabis, suggesting that they should be able to study the actual products consumers are purchasing, from state legal dispensaries. The Senate Appropriations Committee passed the legislation which covers fiscal year 2024 funding for labor health and human services, education related agencies, and it's attached report language last Thursday, advancing it to the floor. In addition to the research focused drug policy sections of the report, there's also language in the underlying bill, and this is the part that we hate to hate, love to hate, that prohibits the use of federal funds for any activity that promotes the legalization of any drug or any substance included in Schedule 1 under the Controlled Substances Act unless there's a significant medical evidence of a therapeutic advantage. Okay, let's parse this out for a minute as my old high school English teacher would tell us, right? What are they, what are they saying here? It's on Schedule 1 because it has no significant evidence of therapeutic advantage. How would we discover that significant medical evidence of therapeutic advantage? By testing it. But guess what? It's on Schedule 1, so you're not allowed to test it, right? Sorry, guys. This is on Schedule 1. The only way to get it scheduled off is to test it and show otherwise. But oops, you can't test it either, um okay. Richard Nixon's been dead for a long time. Um the uh Controlled Substances Act served its purpose for a time. Uh no, it really didn't, but it made certain people feel like it did. But but now we just have to say enough, right? Because marijuana, please go talk to all the people who use medical marijuana go talk to all these people and all these studies another study and another study and another study that we read week after week after week people have pain relief increased styles of living uh, you know more energy to go out and do things i mean these are all wonderful things for which they are no longer having to take hard medical drugs. So you can't say that this is not producing a therapeutic advantage. It just is. And to say it's not is to be willfully blind and to say, you know, that, nope, sorry, we're going to put form over substance here and we're just not going. We're going to keep our eyes closed and stick our fingers in our ears and yell really, really loud, nah, nah, nah. And we're going to pretend like it doesn't exist and you can't make it exist because the only way you could make it exist would be by doing something illegal. So you better not be testing it because if you are, you're testing schedule one and go straight to jail. Go, you know, do not pass. Go do not collect $200. You're done. Go off to jail. So, you know, look, hopefully what they really mean by all of this is that they're going to find a way to get this nonsense taken care of so that we don't have to keep having these ridiculous, stupid, artificial barriers that, you know, anyone is perfectly capable of understanding and looking at and seeing Um, and saying this is just stupid. It's just stupid. My wife gets mad when I say things are stupid or I call people stupid, but this is stupid. There's no other way to describe it, honey. I'm sorry. It's just stupid. The only stupid people would rationalize in the way that the federal government tries to rationalize about marijuana. So stupid is as stupid does. And yeah, that's Forrest Gump or something, but he was smarter than them. So come on, federal government, pull your head out of your ass, get it right, and let's figure out how to move all of this forward without buying into these old, silly, nonsense uh, talking points from uh, you know back in the day that uh, there is just no medical advantage. We, we, it's, it's such a lie that you insult us every time you, you, you try to point that out. Now, here's an interesting story, and I like this one because at least on the surface, it seems to solve a problem, and uh, on a deeper level, it screws the government. So amen to that. This is from our friends over at MJ Biz, and uh, we appreciate all of their great news and uh, uh, services and providing uh, the happenings of the day in the cannabis world to uh, people out there so we can all uh, see and take advantage of it. In this article, uh, they point out that There might be people who have a solution to our common enemy, our common enemy being 280e, uh, the the tax program that um, unfairly taxes cannabis businesses. And uh, we've talked about forever uh, with my former host Jim Marty, who uh, was one of the early pioneers in in cannabis tax accounting and fought many battles uh, uh, with the federal government over 280e and how to expand the cost of goods sold, which is the loan. A deductible component uh, that dispensary owners who are engaged in the retail sale of this Schedule One of the Schedule One product. So, what happens? Well, a growing number of marijuana businesses are taking advantage of a tax strategy that might reduce the costly financial burden imposed by Section 280 of the Federal Tax Code. Small businesses with a gross income of less than 27 million are able to deduct expenses to a near legal degree, according to accountants specializing in cannabis. By one estimate, marijuana companies pay nearly $2 billion more in federal taxes than mainstream businesses. Why? Because you can't deduct your ordinary business expenses. So, you're paying taxes on, you know, 66% instead of 33%. It, it's just, it's, it's insane. And, um, but not all certified public, oh, not all certified public accounts are on board with using the relatively new tax strategy. They warn cannabis entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs that using it can be risky. So tech Section 280E currently prevents plant-touching companies from deducting many traditional business expenses because marijuana remains a Schedule I uh, controlled substance and it's illegal under federal law. In recent years, a growing number of accountants and professionals specializing in cannabis discovered a small business provision within 2017's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The provision called Section 471C was designed to simplify accounting for inventory and cost of goods sold for businesses with less than $25 million in gross income. For example, if a business wants to include 100% of its facility costs in its inventory calculation, it could do that if it is based on the company's books and records, uh, according to one uh, accountant uh, based in Oregon uh, who did a lot of work on this. In other words, a cannabis retailer can include expenses associated with renting a storage facility for inventory and its cost of goods sold. For some businesses, the tax savings uh, from including such expenses under inventory costs could be significant. Uh, We can get taxes down to near legal levels, the accountant said uh, when being interviewed. Uh, According to him, costs disallowed under Section 280E do not disappear. They just cannot be deducted under the old accounting methods. But under Section 271C, the limitations of the old accounting methods no longer apply and some of the costs can be recognized as cost of goods sold. This creates the possibility of recapturing costs that were previously disallowed under 280E before the use of the 471C method. But again, while a growing number of CPAs are using it, there are still a number of accountants who won't use 471C arguing the 280E disallows any kind of deduction and will invite an audit Uh, Even if you try and put it under this other section. Now, um, I'm not an accountant. I don't pretend to be an accountant. Certainly not smart enough to be an accountant. And uh, one of these days, I'm going to reach out to Jim Marty because we haven't had him on in a long time. And we're going to bring him on board and see uh, if he can explain all of this to us in a way uh, that makes some sense and uh, uh, would be helpful. Uh, for the smaller people now, understanding, of course, when they say 27 million gross, uh, a lot of small operators would be thrilled to make that. But if you know that totally knocks out the uh, multi-state operators because they're pulling in gross numbers that are gross. I mean, they're very, very large and far larger than that, so they don't get this small business benefit. Um, but it is interesting to see that there are still accountants out there uh, who have not given up the fight and uh, who are still looking and searching for ways uh, to beat the government in its own game in this and hats off to them and you know more power to them and Uh, You know, If you're operating a cannabis business and you're plant touching and you think that you might have some uh, 280E liability, I would advise you to absolutely positively go out and talk to somebody who has experience in cannabis accounting. It has to be cannabis accounting. It can't be your uncle's best friend from college who's a really, really good accountant because cannabis accounting sections don't apply with regular accounting. These are completely different things, and somebody who's not a cannabis accountant would never have any reason or excuse to ever be dealing with them and may not know or fully understand understand the implications of these sections of the tax code Uh, but you should absolutely uh, be getting professional advice if you are a plant touching company uh, particularly if you're a dispensary uh, and you are selling it at the retail level Um, the third story i want to drop in today is is a great story for a number of reasons Um, first of all it's a um uh hats off to Minnesota, and uh, why not? Um, they have now enacted a legalization uh, act that many feel could become a national model. Uh, thank you to my good friend, Andy Greenberg, a very good friend of the show and frequent guest who sent me this article a few days ago. Uh, she is a Minnesota native, and Good buddy Mikey, who took me to my first show, as a Minnesota guy, and uh, Lee B and the whole crowd up there. So I always like to give a hats off for uh, Minnesota. Um, so let's 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 look and see uh, five ways that uh, the experts believe that Minnesota's legalization could be a national model. Okay, point number one: possession, consumption, and home grow are all legal. So starting as this was passed, which I believe is August 1st, so we're now three days into it. Adults 21 and over are able to have up to two ounces of cannabis flower, eight grams of concentrates, and 800 milligrams of THC edibles in public. Those will also be purchase limits at adult use dispensaries. The limit for flower possession at a private home is two pounds. That's That's pretty significant. Um, Adults can also opt to grow their own cannabis at home. Each household is allowed eight plants, four of which can be flowering at any given time. Plants must be in an enclosed, secure area that is out of public view. Uh, that's that's a decision being made to deter crime. It's a smart decision. So this all sounds great. Everything starts on August 1st. So again, uh, three uh, two days ago. So this would be day three. And um, you know, I, I like the part about being able to have up to two pounds at home. You know, in Illinois, patients are still limited to two and a half ounces. Uh, so that's how much you can buy at a dispensary at a time. But if you already have an ounce at home and you're going to buy some and bring it home, you could, according to the rules, you can only buy an ounce and a half you know, here uh, to be able to buy up to two pounds to have at home uh, could be significant for people who have conditions uh, that demand uh, larger doses and and larger quantities of uh, medical cannabis for them to be able to use. So that's a good point. Um, Point number two, defining where you can consume may may be tough. Okay. So it effectively makes public consumption legal but there are a few exceptions. Now that's notable right there because most states effectively made public consumption illegal. And then we would find a few exceptions. So, you know, in this case, um, and, and, I have not had a chance yet to talk to any of my, uh, Minnesota counterparts to get the inside story on what's going on with all of this. Uh, but my read about that is that, uh, you know, you should be able to smoke it in a public place, uh, Except for where? Well, multifamily dwellings. Okay, well, that's apartments and and condominiums. Um, So they may have to leave their building if they want to smoke or dab, which is interesting because in Illinois, you're really in a tough spot because you can't go outside to smoke or dab because you can only smoke or dab uh, inside out of view of the public. Um, but they also say that, you know, if you live in an apartment building, which a very large percentage of people do and who live in the city, that, you know, you need your apartment owner's permission to do it. And if the apartment owner has a mortgage and the, the bank that holds the mortgage for the, for the, uh, uh, for the landlord says nope no way we won't let you have marijuana on the property because we don't want to run the risk of government forfeiture of the property because that's our security for you to repay your loan and then the landlord comes back and says hey guys look I'm really sorry Uh, you know you you can't smoke and you can't smoke in your apartment Um, but in in Illinois you can't I mean technically speaking you're not allowed to go outside and smoke you can't smoke in your car that really leaves you with nowhere to smoke uh, but here, interestingly enough, it looks like they are saying um, that even if you can't smoke in your apartment, you can leave your property, you can go outside and you can smoke. Um, I'm sure that uh, as more rules are enacted, uh, they'll address that a little bit more in things like public transportation, uh, you know, in schools, um, you know, sporting events, you know, where there's large crowds gathered. So we'll see where it all breaks out at the end. But but so far, that's interesting. Um now here's one that I, that you know is a little bit funny for me and it makes me wonder because it says cannabis cannabis sales are currently limited to tribal dispensaries while adults may be able to have cannabis as of August first it may be difficult for them to get it it could be early early 2025 before dispensaries open as the state takes time to flesh out the license process and regul the licensure process and regulations however indigenous tribes in Minnesota have been given a head start and may opt to open adult use dispensaries essentially as soon as they'd like. So far, two tribes in the northwestern part of the state have decided to take advantage. So this is fascinating, right? Because remember, point one in this of the five things said, starting today, adults 21 and over are able to have up to two ounces of cannabis flower if they can find where to buy it. So you know that that seems to me to be a little bit of a bait and switch, and I'm not sure why uh, it's going to take all the way until 2025 uh, to get dispensaries open. This is August of 2023. Uh, you know most states aren't Illinois, and now not every state can be Missouri that did it in 87 days. But for God's sake,s if Missouri could do it that fast, and Arizona could do it that fast, it shouldn't take Arizona, you know, the better part of a year and a half before they can get dispensaries open uh, that aren't located on uh, on tribal lands. And uh, while I'm all for, you know, allowing indigenous people and uh, indigenous tribes anywhere in the country uh, to be able to sell cannabis and and benefit from it just like everybody else does, I can't believe that in Minnesota uh, it has to, you know, be such a long time uh, before the regular Minnesota citizen is just going to be able to walk to a dispensary like, heck, like we can do now in Illinois, like they can do in all the states that have legal cannabis, I know a lot of people in Minnesota, they're just waiting. So as soon as uh, they get the green light from the government, let's start opening up those dispensaries and uh, we can make an evening of it in downtown uh, uh Okay, the third point, automatic expungement of criminal records starts immediately. Now, this is just good. Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension will begin automatic expungement of lower-level cannabis convictions right away. Over 60,000 Minnesotans may be eligible, but officials believe it may take up to a year to clear the backlog. No state has made it automatic, one of their representatives explained. Every state has made their people petition to get the expungements done, which we didn't feel was the right way to go. That's going to completely free up the lives of so many people. Felony convictions may take a bit more work to erase from individual records. A cannabis expungement board will soon be formed and will determine eligibility on a case-by-case basis. This is great. This is just fantastic. And there's just no other way to say it. They're absolutely right. Every other state, they've put the burden on the individuals to A, be aware of the fact that there's an expungement program, and B, to have the sophistication to know where to go and how to fill out the forms for an expungement program and how to present it, and C, otherwise, to have enough money to be able to pay somebody else to do it for them. And here, they're saying, nope, we're the government. Uh, we're going to take care of it. And That's just wonderful. I I applaud them for that, and that is something that any state model uh, should look to uh, uh, emulate. Even if you're a state like Illinois or Colorado or California or any of the states that are already up and running, there's nothing that says you can't change when a better idea comes along, and that's a great idea. So uh, I would like – it would be wonderful to see more states consider that. And then, of course, the the fifth point about the Minnesota statute is it has a ban on synthetic cannabinoids, products containing – uh, synthesized cannabinoids like HHC and THC. Oh, we're outlawed. Earlier, when the governor of Minnesota signed Minnesota's recreational marijuana bill into law, however, they continue to be sold in smoke shops and hemp dispensaries across the state. According to a Minnesota attorney, that will likely change this fall. All hemp businesses must register with the state by October 1st. Uh, Otherwise, the attorney believes that a crackdown could come soon after. Uh, There's still an issue with enforcement. I expect there will be more once the state knows Who's selling it, the attorney said. So, um, you know, look, synthetic cannabinoids, okay, fine. Um, although some people say that also includes Delta 8. So, of course, you know, we have to be very careful when a state wants to start eliminating things. Um, from a health and safety perspective, I have no problem with it. But from a, uh, a business perspective and, a, you know, let's get the people what they want and, you know, and what they're really looking for perspective, uh, I'm not as fond of that type of a system. So, um, you know, we'll just have to kind of wait and see what happens, uh, in, in terms of where they go with that. Um, but Minnesota and legal cannabis are now on the table. Make your way up to the land of 10,000 lakes, uh, but just make sure you find the right one out of 10,000 where they have an Indian tribe so you can go and buy your, uh, your flower marijuana because it sounds like you may not be able to do it in any other part of town. Now, I'll check in with the Minnesota crowd and find out if I'm misreading all of this. And, and if I am, by, Um, Well, you can be sure we'll be back, uh, quickly to, uh, to change that and, and to get the correct news out there. Um, but either way, uh, again, it's great to see Minnesota doing it. Uh, I'm going to be with a lot of my old Michigan crowd up in Minnesota this fall with uh, the Wolverines head out there to play the uh, the Gophers in uh, the continuation of the Little Brown Jug series. I believe it's the oldest uh, rival trophy in all of college football. Uh, this is not a Michigan podcast, so I don't need to get into it much deeper than that. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, we've seen the game in Minnesota a few times because we have friends out there. Um, we're all going to get a big group out there this time, and um, you know there may be some stories that come out of that that we can share in future editions of the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show uh, with the aforementioned but seldomly seen or heard Alex Wellens uh, and a number of other people. Uh, but it should be a great weekend and a lot of fun. Um, okay, so now... Uh, more music, and this is uh, really one of my all time favorite Jerry Garcia clips. It's every Deadhead's one of their favorite Jerry Garcia clips. Let's hear it. Uh, any deadhead doesn't know the uh, Morning Dew Crescendo, uh, the, the Jerry solo there uh, from Barton Hall, Ithaca, May 8th, 1977. Uh, go out and have your Deadhead credentials reexamined because that's we should all know that. We should all be singing that in our sleep. It's, it was the amazing climactic moment of an amazing, amazing show. Um, and I can just listen to that Morning Dew over and over and over again. Uh, And I just love that ending. So, uh, you know, kind of a good way, I think, to wind down today's show. Um, I'm getting the signal from our producer, Dan, that somehow uh, without a whole lot to talk about, I've still managed to fill up an hour of time. And I guess that's not that hard to do when you're talking about the Grateful Dead and marijuana and and other good stuff like that. Um, Next week, I will not be here. I'm taking a much-needed and well-earned vacation with my family off to the wilds of Glacier National Park, um, and uh, we'll have a chance to uh, hang out with my kids, still get them to listen to a little Grateful Dead, but be listening to a little of their music, too, because that's what you do on family vacations. Um, but I will be back uh, the week of August 21st, and therefore forward, we will have many more good shows, lining up some guests for the fall. Uh, selecting some more Grateful Dead shows that we want to feature and uh, other good things. Next week on August 14th, uh, we will be replaying uh, one of our fan favorite shows. Uh, uh, a year or two ago, we were very, very uh, blessed to be able to have David Gans on our show. And uh, David is a huge member of the Grateful Dead family, one of the co-hosts of the um uh, Tales from the Golden Road with Gary Lambert. And, uh, we are going to replay, uh, my interview, uh, Jim Marty and I interviewed him, uh, and we're going to replay that interview next week. And if you didn't hear it the first time around, I would very much encourage you to listen to it because there are a few people alive who know more about the Grateful Dead than David Gans. And, uh, he was great, answered a lot of our questions and, uh, just shared some good stuff with us. So, uh, Look forward to that. I will look forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Everybody, from now until then, have a great time. Listen to some dead. Be safe. Enjoy the rest of the days between, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. soul. So many roads to ease my soul. So many roads to ease my soul. Lord, so many roads